Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'll be hosting the channel today. Uh, In this episode, we're going to be talking to Christina Thompson, author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. I'm excited to talk to her today because it's one of the few popular nonfiction books written in the U.S. about Polynesia, much less the prehistory of the Pacific. So it's wonderful to have this new book. Uh, I'm excited to talk to her today about the topics in the book, how she wrote it, and what we can learn from it about studying Oceania. So, Oceania. So, Christina Thompson, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. I wonder if we could get started um, by talking a little bit about your biography. How is it that you became interested in this topic and the Pacific more broadly? Um, well, I am from the Boston area, so not a Pacific person at all. And after I went to college, I moved to the West Coast, and then I decided I wanted to go to graduate school, and I decided to go to graduate school in Australia, which in hindsight uh, seems like a curious decision, but <laughs> I made it, and I um, it just changed the path, the course of my life. I did go to Australia. I did do a PhD at the University of Melbourne. Um, I was in English. That was my field. And I just got started reading. Um, I originally went to read Australian literature. And then I realized that I didn't really understand Australian literature very well because I knew nothing about Australian history. So then I started reading Australian history. And that rapidly took me into the broader Pacific. So that was kind of how I got going with it. Can I just ask a a random question since you were in Melbourne? Did you know Greg Denning at all while you were there? He's a historian of the Pacific. Right. Greg Denning is a very famous historian of the Pacific, a very wonderful historian. And the great irony is that he was upstairs from me and I was not in history. And so I didn't know him because I was in English. And then he was also actually at Harvard when I was in Melbourne some of the time. So um, I did not know him personally, but I, you know, anyone who's interested in the history of the islands uh, should read Greg Denning. He is a great he was a great historian. Yeah. And I think being in the place where he worked or visiting the places uh, where your subjects have lived, I think, sheds light on their lives and gives you new insight into them, which I think you you talk about a little bit in this book as well. Um, you did a previous book on the Pacific as well. How do these two books relate to each other? My first book was called um, Come on Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All, which is a quote. It's It's actually Charles Darwin misquoting Captain Cook. Um, and really that book was my first, uh, attempt to uh, say something about the Pacific. I, I, you know, it was my, also my first book for the general public. I had written a dissertation before that. I had written academic articles. I'd written a lot of essays, but that was my first book. And, um, it got called a memoir. It's funny because I thought it was a history, (laughs) but I used my own experience to, in my mind, elucidate some of the ideas that I had about history. 
So it ended up being a story about the history of contact in New Zealand, contact between Maori and Pākehā in New Zealand, kind of in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. But also it was a story about my marriage to um, a man from the Bay of Islands, a Maori who um, uh, is of Ngāpuhi ancestry. And just for um, listeners who might not be familiar, Māori are indigenous Pacific Islanders of New Zealand, and Pākehā is the their word for like what we would call white people, or in Hawaii, howlers. Right, right, right. Sorry about that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so that so that was really it, you know it did end up being about a book about half half of it was about our life and half of it was about history. It was a funny book. <laughs> I'm fond of it still, but. <laughs> Yeah, but it was a very different book from this one in that it was much more personal. Um, and this book is really not about me at all. It's really about uh, information and ideas. So let's turn to that book. It's about it's about information and ideas. It's about the Pacific, but it's not really it's not really a history of the Pacific the way that like um, some other histories like Pat Kirch's book On the Road of the Wind is, which is sort of one of the most famous summaries of the prehistory of the Pacific. What exactly is your angle? And um, when you say it's about uh, information and ideas, uh, what is the topic of the book? How would you describe it specifically? Sometimes what I like to say is um, that I started off by thinking that I would, I was very interested in the the settlement, the prehistoric settlement of remote Oceania, right? So how did Polynesians get to those islands? Who were Polynesians? Who were the people who settled those, who made those amazing voyages and reach the islands like Hawaii and New Zealand and so forth. So I was, you know, who are those people and where they come from and all that. And I originally had this idea that I would write this kind of epic history. And what happened was of course that I, I very quickly realized that that's a novel, you know, you, you can't, I mean, that's Moana, right? You can't write the actual epic history of this time because it's prehistory and the ac- the access that we have to it is very, piecemeal. It's very limited in, and uh, fragmented. So that's made me ask, uh, say to myself, well, so what do we know? What, what can we know? And that in turn led me to this story, which uh, again, I, I didn't set out exactly to do it this way, but I began to see that the story was, how did we piece this story together? How did we figure out who these people were, where they came from? What do they think? What do, did the explorers think? What do scientists think? What do people who study DNA think? You know, so that's, that's what it became. So it's really a history of the study of the prehistory of Polynesia and how people got to Polynesia as that study has been carried out by sort of Western scientists and archaeologists and explorers. Yeah, not just Western scientists and explorers. I mean, I think that's one of the things that people sort of say, well, you know, this is a book about how other people see the Pacific, but that's not really totally true. I mean, it's definitely been, um, you know, it was a subject of interest to a man like Tirangi Hiroa, who was a Maori anthropologist in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, well, you know, through the first half of the 20th century. Um, And, uh, you know, it's been, it was a, it's a subject of great interest to Hawaiians involved in the Polynesian Voyaging Society. So it's not really just outsiders looking in, but it is in fact, yes, it is a history of the attempt to answer these questions. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, um, so the, the book starts with early um, exploratory voyages in the Pacific 
And then towards the end, there's a long section on the rise of Pacific voyaging. And for people who aren't familiar with this, um, famously in the 1970s, uh, during a resurgence of interest in Hawaiian identity and other Pacific Islanders' identities, people began sailing using traditional methods. And one of the first big um, voyages was from Hawaii to Tahiti and back without an engine or a map, which is which is quite an achievement. So is there is there kind of a shift then in the book from studying these early explorers to to a more inclusive project? Do you see this this project of trying to understand Polynesia as a a project that grows increasingly more inclusive? Well, I don't I mean, maybe that would be a way to look at it. I didn't see it that way. My organiz- organizing principle was chronology. Um, this is something I often tell my writing students that chronology is your friend when you're writing because it really helps you organize things. There is a lot of causality in just time and how things unfold in time. So for me, the reason I started with the explorers was not because the explorers were the most important. It's because they um, provide us with our first data point. Um, you know, you can and 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 you could say, oh well, Polynesian. oral traditions are the first data point, but uh, not in terms of the record. That's not true. Um, In terms of what is recorded and what we can look at in the way of evidence, uh, the first thing we have is eyewitness reports from the first Europeans who get into the Pacific in the 16th century and then, you know, 17th and 18th centuries. And so, uh, I didn't address the question of, say, for example, what did what did pre-contact or just at contact Polynesians think about their own story or what their where who they who they were where they came from? I didn't address that until we got to the point where that was recorded, which is not until the 19th century because I don't really have access to it before that. You know, it's not because it's right in the 19th century; it's because I had no way to get at it before the 19th century when missionaries and colonial officials and other people started writing that stuff down, you know? So, so that's kind of the logic of it is this, we, you know, you understand this thing and then you understand this thing and then you understand this thing like that. Yeah. And I should say for people who do want an overview of the Pacific, um, it is a pretty good overview. You're very artful in the way that you managed to say, you know, uh, Mindanao lands in the Marquesas, and then you s- slip a little bit of geography and geology in, and then, you know, we get to the two Motus and we get atolls and how they work. So in between, you do a very good job, I think, of splicing in the background information that readers need to know to get to get what's going on. And you're sort of slowly filling them up with uh, all the background information that they need to know to see what's going on. So I, I really appreciated that aspect of the book. I, I'm really happy to hear you say that because that's pretty, that was pretty intentional. And one of the things that I was really aware of, and again, I come from Boston, you know, and, and I live in Boston now. So we're really far from the Pacific here. And I'm really aware of how little people know about uh, Oceania and the, the islands. They may have been to Hawaii. I felt as though Hawaii was a reference point I could use. But beyond that, I didn't count. I didn't assume very much at all. So I felt as though the first part of the book was actually, in some ways, even more geography than it was um, you know, European explorers. I mean, they're the characters, but I, I'm glad you point you anyway, you felt that way about it because that was what I was trying to do was try and sort of lay out the territory. Yeah, um, I, you know, I yeah. think when um, people who are sort of experts in studying these things 
uh, read texts, sometimes they think like, well, well, we already know this and why do we have to go over this again? But the question is always, who is the we and what kind of background do you expect? I think there's one of the chapters where you're talking about the rise of like Percy Smith and other people who studied Polynesian folklore. And you have a couple of paragraphs which are like, meanwhile, back in Europe, something called romanticism was happening. And I thought, oh, that's a that's actually a very, very complicated story. But, you know, we, we get just enough of it here to understand why this would be of interest in, in the late 19th century in New Zealand. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I'm glad you I'm glad you like that, too. <laughs> yeah, I really felt that. I mean, that was the other thing that was super important to me that seemed to me most interesting was it not just do you have this series of arguments or series of what I like to think of as data points, but basically they're arguments, um, evidence and arguments. But each of them is contextualized, you know, I mean, or should be contextualized. And I tried to do that to say, well, why does a person in 1950 think this thing? Or why does a person in 1870 think this thing? Not only who is that person and, you know, like certain things about Cook seem to me really related to the fact that he is basically a, a chart maker. You know, he's a guy who's really interested in geography and certain things about you know, like you say, Percy Smith or or Abraham Fornander really are a function, I think, of the era and in some cases the educations that they had, um, the era in which they lived. So, so that all seemed really important to me to try and set each bit of the information in its proper frame. Yes, I, as I listen to this, I'm thinking about sort of what my my deepest point of doubt about this book is and what I find really interesting <laughs> about it. I mean that in a positive sense. That's a, that's a term that Kofi Haratuni and Gordon uses for running classroom discussions. You know, like what is the genre of the book? On the one hand, it's an intellectual history of ideas. But on the other hand, as you say, it's also a sort of a cultural history or a social history about what kinds of projects people would care about, what kind of things drove them personally so that so that those intellectual issues would be relevant for them, you know, and, and important for them. One of the sequences that I think is is a very good illustration of exactly that is as you come into the end of the book when, you know, this Polynesian Voyaging Society, which you referred to earlier, where they, they start to build and the the uh, replica voyaging canoes and then reenact the voyages in the 1970s, how that is precipitated by a series, a couple of things that happen in the 50s and 60s, well, even in the 40s, 40s and 50s and 60s. So it's not that, the, not as though that, that those ideas just emerged out of the ether, you know, they were caused. And a lot of people do understand that, you know, uh, Andrew Sharp's book about Polynesian drifting um, was in fact a spur to for, for many a minute much of the action of the 1970s but but it seemed important to me to really lay it out like this is a thing that happens and then in reaction this is what happens you know so that, because I think sometimes the 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 causes get lost um, and I think a lot of people who know something about the Polynesian voyaging society may not actually know it's much about its real its sort of deep origins so that was kind of important to me too Yes, you know, I will take this opportunity to plug Sam Lowe's book, Hawaii Rising, which I know you drew on um, in your own chapter. If people are interested after taking a look at this book, it, it going deeper in the rise of Polynesian voyaging, that book is so well written and so carefully researched uh, and so knowledgeable about the Polynesian Voyaging Society. And, it, you know, it, it could it, it's being taught in middle school. 
And um, so it's very accessible. And one of the things about that book is that Sam really conveys in it how how many people like Nainoa Thompson, who is one of the main navigators in that um, society, um, the deep shame they felt about being Hawaiian and the the way in which colonialism had really gotten into them and how much this was a, a story of, of redemption um, uh, psychologically and sort of also at the level of the, the, a people almost. And um, it's a great introduction for people who want to know some of that deeper history, especially I teach that book often at the University of Hawaii where I'm a professor and and the Polynesian Voyage and Society is so successful today that sometimes I have to explain to students what it was like in the 40s and 50s before people were learning about it in high school and before people had this sense of uh, the Hawaiian Renaissance being sort of a fait accompli. So I, w- I will just um, take a chance to, to plug that book there. I-, I would absolutely second that. I think that is an incredibly important book. Um, I think Sam did the world a huge favor by writing it. Uh, one of the reasons that it is actually very important is that it's really based on testimony. Um, it's basically an oral history, very largely. I mean, the sources, there aren't a lot of sources on that on that early history. And the ones that are not direct uh, interviews that he used are the same sources I use. There's just a handful of them. Um, but but he went out and talked to a lot of the early, the original players in that, in those early voyages. And that, and that's super valuable. So... Yeah. And your book you. is, yeah, your book is is full of other stories of personalities um, and, and their sort of background like that. One of those that I was really struck by was Willow Dean Handy. Uh, you have a chapter on her, and um, she just sounded so intriguing to me, and yet she's not as well known as as um, Nainoa Thompson or Terangi Hiroa, Peter Buck, who you mentioned earlier. The um, uh, uh, Maori anthropologist. Can you tell me about Willow Dean Handy? What do what do people who are interested in the history of the Pacific need to know about her? Well, um, yeah, Willow Dean turned out to be one of my favorite characters in the book. There are almost no women in this story, and it was very nice to come across Willow Dean. Um, she was the wife of uh, Edward Handy, who was an anthropologist with the Bishop. Uh, museum. And he went out with the Bayard Dominic expedition, which was that big 1920 expedition, which was designed in part to answer the question of, of how the Polynesian, um, uh, you know, diaspora, what, how it, how it unfolded. Um, hang on a second. I have to, can you, computer's doing something. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, Willa Dean Handy went out with her husband, Edward Handy, on this Bayard Dominic expedition, and she was there as a volunteer, and he was there to, they went to the Marquesas, and they were um, doing a lot of ethnological work. They were collecting information about cultural practices, and they were collecting folklore and myths and stories and blah, blah, blah. Um, and she helped out, and then she decided at some point that she would try to document the tattoos because there were still some Marquesans who were pretty well tattooed, even though it had been outlawed. And it turned out that you couldn't really photograph the tattoos effectively. And so she ended up drawing them. And there are these there are these collections of her drawings, which were published in a little monograph, which I think is one of the most important monographs of that expedition. Um, the entire expedition, all of the people 
and it's became a, a source book for the revival of tattooing, of Polynesian tattooing. So she was kind of an interesting figure. And that book is called Tattooing in the Marquesas. And I, I think it's online. The Bishop Museum has digitized it if people Google it. But one thing I didn't realize reading your book is that she and her husband both wrote sort of uh, uh, memoirs of their time in the islands as well. And it seems like throughout you you draw a lot on memoirs and sort of personal memories. Uh, can you talk about reading some of those um, lesser known works that provide the backstory for some of this research? How did you do that work? Um, well, you know, memoirs, if, if only people would uh, especially professionals would write them more often. <laughs> they don't have to be great, but they do provide um, historians in the future with lots and lots of information that otherwise just is completely missing from the record. So I would never have known what her life was like in the islands if she hadn't done that. Now, hers was written retrospectively many years later. So, you know, I mean, there's that to think about. Um, but it was a very lovely memoir. I enjoyed it a great deal. And there are other things. There are also biographies that I used. Um, there was a biography of Abraham Fornander that I liked. There was a biography of Kenneth Emery, the anthropologist that I liked. Um, there was a biography of Terangi Hiroa that was quite helpful, although it's not as good as it could be. Um, but, you know, those books are very valuable as companions to the actual record of, say, what a person left behind in the way of scholarship. So you read the biographies. Um, did you also do interviews with people for the book? Some of the discussion of Pacific archaeology, I thought, I don't think Robert Suggs has written up his memoir yet. Did you did you go <laughs> yes, and call actually. people up and interview them? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, Great. I did talk to Robert Suggs, actually. Bob Suggs and I have been on the phone a number of times. And I talked uh, uh, to um, Michael Levison, who was the computer scientist who did the programming on the um, – on the computer simulation in the 1960s, which was kind of amazing. Um, but, but Suggs actually did write, uh, one of his books is a popular book that was about his experiences. So I had some resources there, but, but, and well, you know, Pat Kirch has written a memoir and, uh, these are wonderful books. I encourage all anthropologists to write at some point, especially in their when they're old, to write a memoir of their time in the field, because it's really great stuff. <laughs> Mm. And were there people who you couldn't quite fit into the book or were there sort of topics where you, you sort of felt like I have too many personalities and not enough space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were those things. There were definitely those. Um, the biggest problem area in that way was that I really would have liked to write about the missionaries a little more because the missionaries, uh, a small handful of them, and also some colonial officials in the especially, well, throughout the 19th century, really, were very important in making records of, docu you know, of documenting the corpus, the body of Polynesian oral history, oral tradition. And they were, you know, they were complicated people, and they had a complicated project. So it, it, it became very difficult to write about them without kind of going in deep. And I did that. And then I cut it all out, because I just didn't have room. I couldn't, you know, I, my editor at some periodically would say to me, um, okay, that's enough. You're in the weeds. <laughs> so <laughs> I would have to back out. So yeah, there's, there's more, I mean, there's way more, but I, it, you know, you try to keep a certain shape of a book. You don't, I mean, I care a lot about 
the writing and I care a lot about the shape and I, I wanted it to, you know, I wanted it to be snappy. I wanted it to be a fun read, not too, not too labored or whatever. Yeah. It could be, it could end up being encyclopedic as you sort of slowly go through and, you know, develop a, a, a profile of each individual worker who's, who's worked in this area. And then it, it starts to look more like a reference work than it does a narrative. Right, exactly. So that's, you know, obviously, I was not going there. But there are also other things that, you know, you could say, well, you don't really need to talk about Moa bones. I mean, but I loved Moa bones. I loved Moa. And I thought the whole idea of that the sort of crazy, some of the sort of crazy archaeological, early archaeological confusions that around the Moa and the Moa bones was something that I just couldn't resist. But it isn't essential to the story in the way that say Andrew Sharp would be essential to the story, you know? So there's a little bit of discretion in there about what to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I was quite struck by the chapter on Thor Heyerdahl, who is very, very well known um, to people who study the Pacific. His book Contiki is still, it's still kind of circulating out there in, in public knowledge but I think to most like professors who study the Pacific, we think of him as just wrong and, and misguided. But you, you still spend some time in the book uh, discussing him and sort of putting his place in this story, even if it's not, even if he's not necessarily seen as sort of one of the steps towards better understanding. Or maybe he is seen in that way because he was incorrect. How, how did that decision get made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's a great question because... It, I mean, he was not somebody I could leave out because, as you say, everybody has heard of him. So, you know, you have to place him in the story. But also, I was never focused exclusively on, oh, let us advance to the next correct thesis. You know, I was really interested in what leads to what. And it was it seemed interesting to me that that although when we think of experimental voyaging, we think of the Hokulea and we think of the Polynesian Voyaging Society in the last 30 or 40 years, 50 years, I guess. Um, but but Heyerdahl was the guy who sort of pioneered that idea. You know, he's the guy who built the raft and, and drifted to the Tuamotus. So in a way, he's related to that history, even though not directly. But also, then it seemed to me the important distinction was not just that that had happened early, but that he had had a completely different idea of how that was accomplished. Like you get on a raft and you just wait for the wind to push you, you know, which is totally not the idea behind experimental voyaging in the later 20th century. Yeah, it's quite something. If you uh, read this book, you see the account of Heyerdahl, as he arrives in the Pacific, sort of slowly drifting past islands and realizing he has no way to actually steer the raft to get to them versus Mao Pialog, the Micronesian navigator who sort of helped bring traditional navigation to Hawaii, who can tell which way the boat is going with his eyes closed because he can just feel the waves on the swells. I mean, the difference in knowledge between these two people is unbelievable. Yeah, well, and, and, and in a way, reasonably, because Heyerdahl, you know, is a Norwegian, and he did not grow up on a on a on an atoll. And he did not was not in a boat learning about the swells from the time that he was five. And, you know, I mean, the 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 the, the problem with Heyerdahl really, I think, is that he just wouldn't kind of wouldn't give up that idea of the the, the settlement, the Polynesian settlement from South America, which is, you know, wrong. 
And I think everybody agrees that's wrong. So there was a kind of stubbornness about that that was that was just kind of silly. But but I I also the other thing I like is I I feel as though we should take everybody on his own merits, you know. And I did admire his bravery and his adventurous spirit, um, and his keenness somehow, you know, in the same way that I admired. Um, I admired the, the tremendous accomplishment of Terangihiro and in, in the same way that I admired the doggedness of Abraham Fornander, you know, year after year compiling those, those oral traditions. I mean, I like to write about people that have something that I can, even if they're wrong, I, I still like them in some way, you know? Yeah. I, it sounds like you admire their sort of passion and their, their drive and their stick to itness. Yes, yes, that is what I admire about them. And sometimes that turns into stubbornness and buttheadedness and, you know, <laughs> a lot of other kind of silly things. But but it I just feel as though I feel like the other thing is that a lot of a lot of I mean, I've been in this sort of field peripherally or so for, you know, 30 years or whatever. And I feel as though I came into it as a graduate student in it in a, when post-colonialism was, you know, a thing. And I feel like we've spent so much time kind of pointing fingers at people and saying, these guys were the bad guys. These guys are the good guys. You know, I just, I'm just not interested in that. I'm just interested in what do people actually do? What do they actually say? How does it fit into the big picture of history? So, you know, a lot of it is, um, I, I hope, I don't want to be non-judgmental. I mean, I'm using my brain. I'm using my kind of analytic capacity to sort of decide whether things seem fair or not fair, right or not right. And I am a flawed human and can't be perfect about this. Of course, I'm limited. But I but I do try um, to think about it in that sort of more neutral way. Yeah. I mean, there is a sense in which being really determined and stubborn is necessary for success. I think about Nainoa Thompson. If you've ever heard him speak or seen him, you you can just see the intensity and the the drive that he had to succeed. Um, but that same intensity and drive in other people, it can be deforming. It can lead to rigidity or, or a sort of a doctrinalness that, that ultimately makes work not, not good, but, but what's the opposite of good? Bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I agree um, with you. I agree with you about that for sure. And you know, um, some of your descriptions of people I thought were very, very generous. Um, you know, you have some of the descriptions of the early racial anthropology that was done that ended up not being very useful. And um, you say very nice things about people who many people have um, been much more critical of. Let me let me put it that way. Give me an example. Uh, Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. Well, poor Sullivan, you know, I mean, I mean, the other thing is I really feel that it's, this is, again, comes back to this idea of, of contextualizing. Um, it's easy to be smart after the fact, you know, and I really think that when you, if you try, it's, it's, you're not much of a historian if you can't sort of try to get back into the time and see, okay, what are people thinking? What do they know? What do they imagine? What kind of people are they? What are the limits of their understanding? You know, if you really try to, to, to sort of be where they are, um, uh, it, 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 it helps you. And I think it gives you a more, a, a kind of a greater generosity. And, and I, I mean, Sullivan died young and, and he was embarked on this really absurd 
project, which was totally not doable. I mean, he was never going to succeed given the tools he had. And I sort of felt for him, you know, I felt I could sort of see him muddling away, trying to make sense of all of that biometric data and just not having the tool set that he needed. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's also situations in the study of the Pacific where the uh, controversies haven't been settled yet, uh, where you sort of had to walk around a couple of different theories about how things work. Like I I noticed, for instance, in the discussion of deforestation in Rapa Nui, uh, you you were uh, slightly, um, you're diplomatic. You know, there's, there's, uh, Jared Diamond sort of has famously said, talked about the deforestation of Rapa Nui as a, a metaphor for or an allegory of ecological collapse. And then people like Terry Hunt, I don't know if you've had a chance to yeah, see yeah. his work. Something else, how did you deal with maybe that situation as an example of how you dealt with co- existing contests within the study of this area? Yeah, that's also a really good observation. Um, I, I don't have any way to assess that. I understand what the problem is, which is that if you are... Rapa Nui, or indeed any Polynesian. And Jared Diamond comes along and says, you know, these Rapa Nui, they were, they just cut down the last tree and like, what were they thinking then? It's kind of insulting. So you sort of, there, you know, there's a, I can understand a, a resistance to that narrative. I also think that the rats, you know, rats eat the nuts concept seems perfectly plausible, but I don't really know. And I, you know, I would, in a case like that, I would just read and read and read and read. And if it wasn't obvious to me, also, I, I, I guess the other thing is when I feel like in, with Terry Hunt, I, I feel that there is a very strong, um, there's an argument being made strongly. Um, and I'm not in a position to really uh, decide whether it's a good argument or not. So I just present it. I just offer it. And, you know, that's all I can do. I don't have really my own opinion about how that all played out. I just think we should, somebody else should, you know, that will maybe become clear eventually. I don't know. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you one thing is that one of the things is that as I approached the present in the book, it became more difficult um, in the sense that there are unresolved disputes. There are living people who are making arguments about X or Y. Um, I'm not a journalist. I didn't intend to go out and interview them all. That wasn't my project. So as I got closer to the present, I just kind of said, well, here is what people say now, you know, and in 50 years, we'll be able to look back on this and see what we think about it. But I, I like the things that are further back in time where I can see them a little more clearly and where I can think about can we understand that period better? Because I think we understand our own period reasonably well. But those periods in the past, like I think that the a lot of people in the 19th century have gotten quite misunderstood a lot of the time um, because people aren't thinking mm. about what that world was like. So that's where I'm interested. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point. You know, if you think about the history of the Pacific and the history of the study of the Pacific, there are certain eras or topics where by now there's a huge literature that you could kind of read and scrunch down and clean up and present to the reader. So, you know, the history of early contact as described by authors like Ann Salmon and Greg Denning and Cook's Voyages, there's been enough written on that that you could kind of 
explain to people what the story is. And then for the contemporary stuff, you could interview the archaeologists who are working on that or read their memoirs and, and put that together. But then there is this, there are these other little patches of history. I think you're right that the 19th century folklorists are sort of one of them, where there hasn't been a lot of research done on them. And our, our story about what their story was maybe has not been uh, is not really fully gelled yet. I could be wrong. Maybe people in, in, in New Zealand have already done that. But it does, it does seem to me like there's not been too much sort of synthesizing Fornander and Tregear and uh, Handy and some of these other folklorists. I think and that- your book is one of the first to do that. I mean, that's, that's why it's interesting is that it puts that, that chunk of history alongside a bunch of other ones. I, I, I am glad to hear you say that because, you know, that was in a way the hard part of the book because there wasn't, it's exactly as you say, exactly as you say, that there are, it's very easy in a way to do the, you know, the explorers. It's easy to do. It's not too hard to do the Polynesian Voyaging Society, at least those 1970s, the 1970s might be harder to do the more recent part. Um, And, you know, the archaeological history is kind of complicated, but, um, but at least it's there. But that, I agree with you that that, uh, I found that there was a real uh, a shortage of secondary sources, a real shortage of commentary. There is, in fact, in New Zealand, a certain amount of it, and more in New Zealand than anywhere else. Um, so there are some interesting commentaries on the uh, period during which these oral traditions were recorded and uh, what is what are the characteristics of this documentation itself. You know, that's really part of what you're looking for here is like when they do this documentation, what are their motives? What are they doing? What are they leaving out? What are they putting in? How, you know, how's this all being altered as it's being recorded? That's the interesting question. And who's doing it and what are their motives and what do they think? What's the framework? So all of that was something that I had a little bit of help in New Zealand, not much stuff, not much in, New, in, in Hawaii, I would say. I think it's an open field in Hawaii. I, if, I, if I were a graduate student today... <laughs> that's where I'd be looking. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the other thing is you would do better with this material if you, if you have the language. So someone who has a Hawaiian language will will be in a good position to to do some of this work. But again, it has to be not too, you know, I think it's, you have to, you have to be open to what was going on then. And I think sometimes people are just angry about, because the 19th century is tough. You know, it's a bad time in a lot of the islands. Um, And it's the, it's the colonial, you know, the colonial period, the imposition of, yeah, it's not a good time. So people are mad about it. And I think that's another reason people stay away from this subject. Well, I, I do think people are writing about 19th century scholarship in Hawaii, but they're writing about Hawaiians um, and using a lot of Hawaiian sources and the sort of haole ruminations on Hawaiians have, are less interesting for Hawaiian language scholars today. So I think I think that that is part of the story. Okay. Well, you know, you're right. I think you're right about that. And I was just reading um, David Chang's very interesting book. And um, I I agree. That's what's going on. And it's really, really valuable. And I really am interested in it. And I like it a lot. But I did notice something, which is that I've been looking at the footnotes. And um, so something will get cited. Some chant, for example, will appear in the book. And then Fornander will be the citation. But, you know... Fornander is, a, is so Fornander is a subject here who needs to be incorporated into this story, and I feel like there's nobody 
I mean, look, I, I, I'm not going to insist that anybody pay attention to the white guys in 19th century Hawaii, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But but I, I was happy to to have a little look at that. I And the reason I was interested in Fornander was because, you know, he married, he had all these children who died and he married a Hawaiian woman and they had many children and almost all of them died, all but one. And I really, I really felt like that was part of what was going on with him was that he had this deep, deep attachment to Hawaii and to the people and to these lost children and that that influenced the way that he, you know, what he was doing, why he was so driven to record all that stuff. One of the um, sort of standard things that I think we figured out in the Pacific history boom of the 1980s, or really from the 60s to the early 90s, was that colonial contact was complicated Sides were not clearly bound. There was a lot of mixing in every conceivable sense. People were acted as middlemen for interests in a variety of unpredictable ways. Um, but it seems to me like um, there is a tendency sometimes currently for people to think about the colonial encounter as one that was two-sided with bright and clearly drawn lines. When if you dig back into the, some of that history, the opposite seems true. It's it's much more complicated than that. That is actually, you know, if you had to say in a nutshell, what have I been writing all these years? That's it. That's basically it. I mean, my first uh, my 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 first encounters with this whole body of history came at the same time that I was myself sort of meeting my husband and his family and, and sort of going, Oh, wow. You know, what's going on here? <laughs> who, who, who are, who are these people? And I didn't know anything about that world. So I was very struck by kind of cultural differences, similarities, you know, cliches, what's, you know, what, what do people think? What seems to me to be true in the way of, um, of, uh, about about these cultures and how they interact with one another. So that contact, that sense of that question of contact has been, for me, the complexity of that interaction has just been always, has been my subject pretty much as long as I've been writing as a grown-up. <laughs> yeah. The, the, that sense of entanglement, I guess, from some people. Have entanglement, before, absolutely. Entanglement. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, you know, in the very end of the book, you talk a little bit more explicitly about the politics of doing this research and um, the way in which some Pacific Islanders feel like it's inappropriate for non-Pacific Islanders to write this history, which would be one objection to your work. I suppose another objection to your work would be, given so many things that have been written about Captain Cook, do we really need another book about, uh, you know, white or however you want to discuss it, European, Christian, um, Western people and their quest for knowing Polynesians. Why can't we just get on with the work of actually studying Pacific Islanders? Uh, those are sort of two different questions. One is about sort of the ethics of doing the research, and the other one is about the choices that you've made when you've chose to do it. How would you respond to those criticisms or questions? Um, those? Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the sort of appropriation question, um, my husband and I have kind of a joke about this, which is that, uh, you know, I get to do it as the mother of Polynesian sons, <laughs> right? So I don't know. I mean, I was in the classroom a year or two ago and a girl said to me, um, a young woman said to me, uh, you know, can we, can, can you write about other people? 
And I'm looking at her thinking, you know, if you can't, um, I just think we have to give it up. We have to hang it up because, I mean, I'm basically in the business of creative writing. I'm an editor of a literary journal and, 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 and people write about, I feel people need to be able to write about whatever they want to write about. And I feel pretty strongly about that because I don't think there's any kind of creativity that doesn't involve some kind of imaginative, you know, I put myself in this other world that I maybe don't belong to. So I really don't believe in, I don't buy into the only the people who have this genetic makeup get to or this cultural heritage get to be the people who talk about this. Um, I actually bailed from academia at about the point where a conference was held where the rule was you couldn't talk at the conference unless you were from the Pacific, which meant that I couldn't talk at the conference at all. So I thought, you know, okay, I understand why this is happening, but I, I can't talk at the conference. So, so, so I'm not really welcome here. So, you know, I'll do something else. So I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that we should be limited in that way. Now, I do understand the problem of cultural appropriation. And I do understand that people would like, you know, pe maybe people would like me to shut up or uh, whatever. But for me as a writer, I, I, I don't really want people telling me what I can and can't write about. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, what was the other one? Well, I guess the, the the other one was was sort of the flip side of that one, which is, and this gets back to some of the dilemmas that uh, non-Pacific Islanders get to when they live and work and write in the Pacific, which is that on the one hand, uh, you might have been told, this is something that we should write about and not you. I'm, I don't know who, I'm, can't, I can't think of anyone in my head who would have said that. I'm just imagining that as a position. But then on the other hand, I can also imagine someone saying, well, why are you writing about our, yourself and not us? You know, like this book is not, a, this is not a book about Pacific Islanders. It's a book about people studying Pacific Islanders. And to the extent that Te Rangi Hiroa or other people sign up for a Western project of knowledge, then they get to be in the book. So on the one hand, I feel like, you, you, you know, people would say, what makes you think you can write about us? But then on the other hand, why aren't you writing about us? Why are you writing about yourself? It's, it's about the, the choice of how you right, balance your right, study. Right, right. Why am I doing it at all? Um, I mean, actually, in the beginning, I really did um, have this idea that uh, I was... So when I, my first book really was about myself <laughs> and it was about me and my interaction with this other culture and um, how my husband and I were navigating it. And also how that for me, it seemed to me we were echoing a lot of things that had happened in the past. So it was about the echo, the, the way that the history uh, sort of comes down in the present in and how the history of contact comes down into the present of interactions between people from two cultural groups. So that was really was about myself. And then, you know, this book actually weirdly arises out of a chapter in that book. And that book, the chapter was, it was, we lived in Hawaii for a year. And during that time, my husband had to go home because his father died. And while he was gone, I was sort of thinking about the way that Hawaii connected to New Zealand, because there was this connection being made from one island to another in the sense of my husband going. Um, and that, you know, made me sort of cast my eye, my, my, my mind out back, whatever, onto this larger question of what is the Polynesian Triangle and what is this big history? So I was prompted in that way by this experience of my own. And then I, when I started thinking about it, I thought, what, again, as I said in the beginning, I started thinking, well, how would I even tell that story? You know, and I also feel like 
it is my children's ancestry. It is an interesting question about if I were to try to say to them, this is, I could write them also the book about, you know, their Anglo ancestry. That might be another project. Um, but it, I do feel as though they are entitled to it. And the question of why I would write it from this Western perspective is that actually the question that I'm asking, and I acknowledge this in the book, is sort of an outsider question. It's framed as an outsider question because if you were to say, what is the insider version? It would be, you know, we come from Tepo, we come from Tetumu and Tepapa. Uh, we come from these origins, we have these lineages, you know, we come from Hawaii. It, you know, there's a, like a story there, but it's not the same as the story that I was sort of curious about, which is, okay, um, when did that happen? You know, what, like, it's just a different perspective, a different point of view. So it's a completely different frame. Um, and I tried hard to think about that in the book, to really grapple with the fact that there are these different ways of looking at this problem, and that I have one, and it is not what you would call an insider point of view. So I, I try to be open about that. Um, whether I should or should not have written it, I mean, I don't know. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I think authors always make choices, and and there will always be people who like the choices, and then there'll be people who just don't like the choices. And then that's why some people read some books and not others. I, I, I think, I think that, um, you know, the problem of bounding this topic, you know, in terms of outsider or insider is a complicated one. If you asked people today about their ancestry as Pacific Islanders, th their consciousness has been affected by colonial history, which includes the work of Tirangi Hiroa and Percy Smith in the case of New Zealand. Um, so their sense of their genealogy in that story has been has been affected by those works. And although you describe this as a Polynesian book, I mean, it says Polynesia on the cover. Really, it's it's sort of a what we would call an Austronesian book, and it it touches on connections with Micronesia. So there could be other Pacific Islanders who would say, "Well, we should be part of this story." And why did you draw the edge at the triangles? Because Austronesian culture you know, is much broader and goes on and much deeper and people voyage like this in lots of places. So I, I think sort of in general, whenever you write a book, it's always a book and not all the other possible books out there, which, which people might've liked to have read as well. It's, it's one of the cliches actually about, um, you know, that authors always joke about, which is that the reviewers are always complaining that you didn't write the book that they wanted to write. <laughs> mm, yeah, or that they wish you had written. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with you, and I think that insider outsider thing is is too is it's it's not meant to be glib, but I, um, and I agree that it is. I was I am actually quite interested in people like Terangi Hiroa or like my children who have a sense of uh, two sidedness um, that has always been interesting to me, and um, and so yeah. So I, 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 I think you're right. I, I would also like to just remind people, if they're interested in learning more about Peter Buck or Terangi Hiroa, the, um, his letters to Apirana and Gada are available and they've been edited in a wonderful volume. I think you can get it at least in the United States. It's very um, affordable as an ebook from Google, not Amazon, Google. And, and his personality really leaps off the page. I mean, they're, he, he's a larger than life personality. He's someone, when you read his work, he kind of grabs you by the lapels and 
pulls you in and you kind of feel like he'd hand you a martini. I mean, he's, he's, he's really a bon vivant. You get the sense. He is. He's a great figure and he, he deserves a much better biography than he has. Um, that's another project that someone should undertake. I think it would have to be someone in New Zealand, but, um, it is a, uh, he is a fantastic subject. So speaking about future projects, you've done this book, um, and I know you've said there's stuff in there that would not uh, fit, but that you still have lying around. Do you have any sense of what your next project is going to be? Well, I'm, I'm mulling it over. I think it'll probably take me a year to figure it out. Um, I, I'm very taken by Willow Dean. It's interesting that you mentioned her. I, I, I like her name. <laughs> I, I like her. Um, I liked her memoir. I, I like the idea of the 1920s. Um, I like the fact that she's sort of unknown. So she's somebody who interests me quite a lot. I don't know how much material I can find on her. So that's one issue. Um, I also am kind of a little bit obsessed with the missionaries and I feel like maybe there's more to be said about them. I feel like a lot of the things that people have said about them have kind of come from very sort of narrow perspectives, both pro and con, but that they're, they're more complicated. There are some of them in particular, very strange. Um, and there's a lot of material on them, but I don't know if I want to live with it for five years or whatever. Um, so that's another issue. There's another problem with that too, for me, which is that I am not really a person of faith. And one of the things that I find difficult with the missionaries is I don't, I have a hard time understanding what it is they thought they were really, they really thought they were doing, you know, why they had that, those beliefs that they were so committed to. So, so that's kind of a problem for me intellectually, kind of an interesting one. Um, what else? I don't really know. I'm still, I'm still, I was at the Bishop Museum very briefly and um, about two weeks ago, and I, it's just a trove, just a treasure trove. And I, uh, I mean, in the archives, and I was just would have loved to just spend six months there, but um, looking at everything there is there, but I don't know. Well, I guess you're allowed when you finish a book to have a period when you don't know what the next book you want to write is. I mean, it's quite a marathon finishing one. So yeah, you deserve a little slack, I'd say. Thanks. This one was a marathon. <laughs> so it was pretty big in, in terms of the amount of, of stuff I had to you know, learn or cover or whatever. So I think I feel as though I, instead of writing a big book that's so m much based on documentation, I feel like I want to write something that's a little freer, a little more, um, a little bit more from the imagination somehow. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the interview today. I, we really appreciate it. And I'll be looking forward to seeing with what you come up next. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And it's been really a pleasure talking with you. You are very knowledgeable and I appreciate that a great deal. Great. Thanks. <laughs>